0: This is a recording made at the Chapel of the Open Book, under the covering title, The Pre-Roma, subdivision The Epistle to the Colossians, and the present series is entitled Seven Steps to Glory, and we've had one or two meetings under this heading already. At this meeting we read a portion of scripture together, so those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us Joshua chapter 3 and 4. I suppose it's very obvious to those of us who have read Joshua 3 and 4 that if we spent the rest of our evening on this chapter we should then find there were many features in it that perhaps would be beyond us. But there are some that are on the very surface. Will you just keep the book open and notice one or two because they will bear upon our subject this evening. Notice the emphasis in chapter 3, verse 2, to the three days. After three days. There's enough references in the scriptures to three days to make us know this is no accident. Three days is a finger pointing to something that speaks of resurrection. And I always like to link together in verse 3 these words. When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, go after it. That's a word for us too, friends. Whatever the equivalent may be. If you want to be led by God, here it is. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, go after it. And then notice in verse 7, and in verse 14 of chapter 4, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee. And in chapter 4, 14, on that day the Lord magnified. Magnified. Twice. The magnifying of Joshua is only a picture of the greater magnifying of the true Joshua when all this type and shadow is fulfilled by him. And then you notice in verse 8 of chapter 3, He stand still in Jordan. Now that word is stand firm in verse 17. Same words. Not merely to stand still, but to stand firm. They stood still in Jordan. And they stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And it's that which is as part of the symbol. Not a, not a place that we would naturally pick to get a good firm stand in the bed of a river. But you see we're dealing with a God of miracle, And we're dealing with a God who is setting forth in type and symbol that this is all preparing us for the great work of Christ. And then notice verse 15 of chapter 3 it speaks about the feet of the priests when they were dipped and that word in the Septuagint version is our English word baptized. here's one of the very earliest references to baptism actual word baptism in the scriptures they were dipped in the water and so we're prepared to discover that in the New Testament there will be something perhaps of which this will be a feature that will help us And then in verse 16, a revised translation reads, And the waters which came from above stood and rose up upon an heap as far as the city Adam. You know, I can't help believing that when the Apostle Paul became an Apostle of Jesus Christ with that marvellous revelation which is incorporated in the Epistle of the Romans, I can't help but believing and have a look at that and say, my, or whatever the Greek word was for my. You says, there's, there's my doctrine anticipated that this work of Christ goes right back to Adam. Why should we be told a bit of geography? What, what does it matter to us whether the city was called any other name? But you see, it's waiting for you. Here is something which in symbol sends that water right clean back to Adam and cuts it off from the Dead Sea down there. Adam and the Dead Sea. Look at it. And the Dead Sea plays a part, you remember, in the day that is coming when the waters of life shall blot out the Sea of Death. And then, in chapter 4, we have a strange symbol. They go to the trouble to take 12 stones out of the water, and then Joshua goes to the trouble to get 12 more and put back again. And then the children are told to say, what's it all mean? So it has a meaning, friends. It's not merely a waste of time, it was an attempt on the part of using symbols to tell us what we've learned in our New Testament of the transfer, the taking of the place, the one going down into that Jordan, and the others who were there going up and standing firm on the back. And you say, well I can't see it. it's got any meaning, is that so friends? I don't believe you. <laughs> Because you hear, know the Lord, you know that's just what he did. He went there where we were, so that we may go there where he was. And that's a part of our story this evening. And so uh, we'll pass now to the subject before us. We are looking at this figure of a ladder, suggested to us by Jacob's Ladder, Endorsed by Christ in the first in the first chapter of John. And we have seen uh, that he has a bearing upon our subject, the fullness. Because the ladder is a two-way affair. You can go down as well as you go up. And Christ went down that ladder from heaven to earth. That we may go up that ladder from earth to heaven. And he emptied himself, Philippians 2. And because he edged himself when he went to the other side of the ladder, on our account it went up, in him all the fullness dwells. That's it. That's the marvellous thought. And we notice that there were seven rungs in this ladder, and each one of them is an association with Christ. The first one was crucified with Christ. The second one, we died with Christ. And do remember the distinction. Adam was never condemned in the Garden of Eden to be crucified. The plain, simple penalty was that he should die. And if you don't know what die means, and people make all sorts of things out of it, friends, it's explained in chapter 3, dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. No added suffering, no added shame, no ignominy, just die. Just dust, going back. Other things have been added since by the enmity of human nature and the antagonism of Satan which is symbolised in the cross which goes even deeper than the death. But the basic thing of the work of Christ as revealed in the scripture is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for the ungodly and the wages of sin is death and he that is dead is freed from sin. Now that's where we left off last time. Well now I've just hesitated. Now, shall I say, well we'll, we'll miss the next run of the ladder, but that wouldn't do, would it? Here we've got the next step with which we're associated. Buried with Him. Buried with Him. And this in the, the Epistle to the Colossians, which is our epistle, in chapter 2 verse 12 says, oh no, chapter 2 verse 11 and 12, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If you're reading the Revised Version, you'll notice the words of, the, of sins is omitted. He is not dealing with sins. He's dealing with the flesh. In the believer. Let's read it again. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Now if baptism in this chapter is literal baptism in water, then it would look as though circumcision was literal circumcision, because it says the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism. And I notice that Dean Orford who in the Church of England would practice baptism, he says that the relation of the verb, the form of the verb buried, with that which goes before, reads like this. In the circumcision of Christ, by being buried with him in baptism. It's all one thing. The circumcision of Christ was not made by hands, it was a spiritual thing. And the burial with him in baptism is the equivalent. It would be a strange thing, wouldn't it, if in verse 11 we have to admit that it's not a ceremony, it's not the actual ceremony of circumcision, it's what circumcision means, and then when we've got to do it, we've got to go back to a ceremony instead of the actual reality. Well, that's only just anticipating a little bit of our study presently. What we must do is to to divide our time up into two, I think, and uh, Give some heed, first of all, to the doctrinal implication of the word burial. And then the significance of the word baptism. I know that if anybody was told before this meeting or afterwards that we spent some of our time discussing the word burial, they'd say, goodness me, November, you go out to a meeting and that's your subject. Well, you know, one Sunday morning we had another subject once and I said to the folks before we started, I said, I don't know whether any of your friends ever say to you, did you have a nice meeting this morning? And uh, you may say, yes, yes. And they said to you, well, what was the subject? And you said, we were looking at the bottomless pit. I said, bottomless pit for Sunday morning service? Well, it it turned out a gripping subject thing. And so we won't bypass this. We'll face the fact that Scripture has a lot to say about this question of burial. And never let us forget that whether we like it or not, our Saviour went the whole gamut. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. It was all for us. So we'll spare a few moments, shall we, to see what the scripture has to say about this. I'm just going to give you a passing references to one or two expressions that are used. Luke 24, Luke 24, verse (coughs) 1. It says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, there came unto the sepulcher, they came unto the sepulcher bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. They were bringing spices. They were not acting in a sort of cold-blooded manner and say, oh, well, he's dead, and what's the good of doing anything? I know sometimes we do, we have to honour the request, the person says, no flowers. And we honour it. But you know, sometimes I think there's a little selfishness about that, friends. Because what can I do? What can you do? Just at that moment. If you can't send just a little bunch of flowers, you can't send anything, can you? And yet... You may criticize it. Well, these people, they may be criticized, but they came with their gift. It could do no good to the person who was dead and buried, but it was honored. And the word sepulchre here is the word that gives us a peculiar word in our English language, mnemonics, M-N. It's difficult to pronounce. It means to remember. The word sepulchre here is a place to remember. Of course, most people say it's a place to forget, but it's a place to remember. You know the scripture says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints." So you're not morbid, if you remember. Not to, you haven't got to be calloused because you believe in the resurrection. Why should you be? And so we have that word. Then we have another word, Matthew 23 Twenty-seven, Matthew twenty-three, twenty-seven. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whitened sepulchers, whitened sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Uh, you know, of course, that these sepulchers were dotted about all over the country, and uh, if When a person came up to keep one of the feasts at Jerusalem, in his journey across country, he stumbled across a a sepulchre or a grave, he was rendered ceremonially unclean, and all his journey would be in vain. he wouldn't be permitted to take the Passover or whatever the feast was. So, before the feasts, they whitened them. That's all. And our Saviour pointed a moral with regard to it. But now, this particular word gives us our word epitaph. When you have a, an inscription put upon a tomb, we call it an epitaph. Well, this is the word tapo, that gives us the word um, a, a sepulchre. Then there's one other one, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. We're not going to keep on with this all the time, but I thought you ought to know that there are these varied words, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 4, Paul includes and incorporates burial in the planks of his gospel platform. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. So he received it from the Lord. He was told that this must be included, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried. And then again the third day, but he was buried. This particular word means by its composition that you did the last service that was possible to you. You did it. Now, of course it's a logical conclusion that if you are dust, that is to say if the composition of your body is made of the surface of the earth, and you die, and life is extinct, and the organism begins to uh, cease, well, then it goes back to the earth as it was. It would go back to the earth as it was, whatever you did. But it would be a shocking thing to be so negligent as never to bother. And so, burial was the consequence, and it is so written right through the Scriptures. I'm not going to discuss the question of cremation. Uh, those who started to emphasise cremation at the beginning Some of them did it because they wanted to lodge a protest against any idea of a life to come. But it's becoming quite acceptable and I have taken a service so far as the cremation of a person is concerned with just the same feeling that I was doing the Lord's service as an ordinary burial. And you might like to know that the word translated dust is also translated ashes. So it's, it's simply... Dust takes a long, a long time in burial and a very quick, quick time in cremation, but it's the same thing in the end. And tomorrow morning, I have to take a service for the wife's brother, my brother-in-law, who has already been cremated, and they are now going to deposit the urn containing just the ashes in the earth by his own request, and there we'll finish. All that we can do, we will have accomplished our dues. We've done the right thing. Now you might turn back to the book uh, one or two parts of the Old Testament just in passing get a glimpse of the general feeling about things. Genesis 15 verse 13 and, and he said unto Abraham no surety that I see shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great sustenance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in good old age. It says it there, as so it was uh, quite a nice thing to say to it. Didn't say, uh, and of course I'm sorry to say that, just say uh, you'll, you'll go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried in a good old age. Of course, we're not going to be those people who quote the bit of Shakespeare when he says, let's talk of graves and worms and epitaphs. That was a man who apparently didn't have much hope. But you see, we've got a covering word to consider before we are done with this text. That your life is hid with Christ in God. So when you bury a person, you buried the ashes and you've buried the dust and you've buried the body, but God's taken care of the life. It may not be conscious. We're not going to load it with things that it doesn't need, but never let anybody rob you of the fact that if you belong to Christ, now at this moment and right through all time until eternity, your life is in with Christ in God. So we can stand there at that grave or whatever it is, and we say well the ashes are going to ashes and dust to dust, that the spirits return to God who gave it. And if he's a believer, his life is hid with Christ in God. And when the day comes, he will give it a body as it pleases him, and then it will be glory. You might turn also to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you have a difficulty in finding it, it's just after Proverbs Ecclesiastes chapter 6 says this, verse 3, If a man beget a hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, but his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say an untimely birth is better than he. Well, that's the estimate of this wise king anyhow. It includes that he has no burial. There's a certain element of disgrace about it. And if you'll turn further on to Isaiah the 14th chapter here's a statement in verse 20. This is spoken of a king. (coughs) And he was so so disregarded by God, yet so pale, that we read, oh, I'm anticipating the next reference, but this is similar, verse 20, thou shalt not be joined with them in burial. So that's twice. You may say, well, what difference does it make to a man who is dead? Well, God is speaking. I don't know, he's speaking. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial. But the passage I wanted to turn to next was Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22. And this is the one that's dealing with the king. Verse 18 and 19. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or our sister, they shall not a bit for him, saying, our Lord, or our ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's a king. And you know, that's the only king in the whole of the record of the kings of Judah or Israel, where it is not written, and he was buried. Many of them were pretty bad lots, but this one was so outrageous that he's the exception. He's given the burial of an ass, which means to say he wasn't buried at all. So you see, there is something about this we may not be able to to have of it. That we cannot bypass the third element in our association with Christ. We died with him, we're buried with him. And so these things are written for our learning. And then you go back to this time of Moses, and you know the singular honour that was placed upon that man? In the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, we are told that God buried Moses. You imagine that funeral. I wish I could quote the words of the poem that only vaguely in my mind you remember the poem, perhaps that was the grandest funeral that ever passed on earth. Perchance the bald old eagle saw it passing by or not. And no man knoweth his sepulchre unto this day, says the angels of God, Upturned the sod and lay the dead man there. And the rabbis say that Moses died by the kiss of the Almighty. And nobody knows his burial. I say, nobody. Satan knew where he was buried. And when the moment came for him to stand upon the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe that's what June refers to when he contended about the body of Moses, you remember? Well, that's only just in part. Well, now, we'd have to leave that aspect, but I thought it was worth a moment or two to see. That it's not a thing to be trifled with and passed over without a consideration. Now, how are we associated with this burial? Well, we're associated by baptism. So the next part of our subject is, well, what do you mean by baptism? Well, we must find that we discover that it is a rite or a ceremony by immersion or by other modes. In most cases, I believe the word means to immerse or to dip. But there are some occasions when it can mean other ways, like washings. That's the way in which it's translated in Hebrews chapter nine when it speaks about diverse washings, that's the word baptisms, and baptizing beds and couches and so on, well that sort of washings. So it's a it's a ceremonial immersion in water or a cleansing by water which associates the person with the purpose of God in relation to sins forgiven and association with Christ and so on. And then there's also the reality about it. Because there's more than one form of baptism. And I think we'll have to give that a, a, a consideration now. One, more than one form of baptism. Should we go back to the first baptizings which we had in the scriptures? and that is in Matthew the third chapter. John, the forerunner of Christ, is peculiarly picked out for all time, not as John the forerunner, he's always known as John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And it says in chapter 3, verse 6, that they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And he preached baptism for repentance, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he also said there was another form of baptism. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So you see, the word baptism could refer to other, um, shall I say, medium, other than water. John the Baptist who baptized with water said, oh, there's another one. He won't baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you nevertheless. When I've been in Glasgow on more than one occasion, I have met sometimes uh, folks who belong to the church of the baptized believers. Well, I said, I belong to that church. They said, do you? I'm surprised. I said, well, why should they have it all? Because they did somebody in water. I've been baptized. Baptized by Christ baptised in this thing. It's more than a mere rite or ceremony. It can be the rite or ceremony, but it can be something else. So we'll just give it a further consideration, shall we? <laughs> uh, the um, Acts of the Apostles 22, verse 16. And I want another passage with that as well. The Acts of the Apostles twenty-two, sixteen, but also uh, I think it's the first of Peter. I'll turn to it in a moment. Uh, chapter two thirty-eight, and read them together. Well, well, we've got the Acts of the Apostles before us. We'll read that first. Verse 12 says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, came to the Apostle Paul, and in verse 16, he said, And now, why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Now, in the, uh, analytical uh, index unless you read that carefully you'll think that I'm denying that Paul was baptised but what I said was he was not that that baptism was never the baptism of Paul Paul would never have been baptised to wash away his sins listen to the man he said Christ sent me not to baptise but if baptism washed away his sins he could never have set it aside like that could he but Peter did oh yes and in the first of Peter, I think it is chapter two thirty eight. First of Peter chapter two thirty eight he says uh, is it Second Peter? Oh dear. Chapter two No. Where am I then? Oh now friends, where well he speaks about that baptism for the remission of sin. Well, time will not permit me to check that reference, but there is one, you remember, that he speaks. Is it the Acts of the Apostles 2? Is it the Acts 2? Ah, oh, yes, I'm yes, I misreading my own writing, which is not, of course, uh, an isolated instance. Acts 2, 38. Oh, yes, I thought it was for the moment a quotation from the epistle. And all this has been recorded against me, friend, Like... Oliver Cromwell said when he had his portrait painted, he wanted warts and all. So, they get warts and all in this recording. Acts 2.38 And then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Well, I would never preach baptism for the remission of sins. Neither did the Apostle Paul, but Peter did. And Ananias, who was a man of the same calibre as Peter, he told Paul to be baptised for the remission of sins. But Paul was baptized. But he may not have liked to have rebuked Anadias at that time, for he's only just beginning himself. But you can understand that he had a different aspect when he said, Christ sent me. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Oh, he said, yes, I have baptized the house of Gaius, I have baptized what? I don't remember who I baptized. You see, you can't treat it like that if it's dealing with a fundamental like of forgiveness of sins. So what was very, very necessary in Peter's ministry was something that could or could not be, as it were, in Paul's. Well now the next, we must pass on, and this time I am true, I'm going to refer to 1 Peter 3.21. There are three different types in the scriptures of baptism that we might observe. This one is used by Peter, chapter 3, 21. He's speaking about the ark in verse 20. Wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So we'll leave those brackets out. Baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But baptism somehow saves us, says Peter. So is entirely in harmony. He preaches baptism for the remission of sins and because of the risen Christ, baptism will save you. And it's not quite absent from Mark 16. These signs shall follow them that believe, And then it speaks about he that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. doesn't say that he that believeth and is saved will then go to a service and while afterwards and show people he's saved by being baptised. No, no. It says, he that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. So we'll leave them as they are without alteration. But you say to me, well, what's that going to do with us? Have we got to be baptised in order to be saved? Have we got to be baptised? Yes, friends, but baptised into Christ. But whether you have the ceremony or not, another question. The first thing to remember is that baptism is uniting you, uniting you with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, whether it's accompanied by a symbol or whether the symbol's left out, that doesn't matter. The thing that matters most is that it's a, a, a mode of uniting the believer with his Lord. <coughs> because, you know as well as I do, you could be baptised in water, but if you're not a believer, it won't, you, it won't unite you to Christ. And it won't bring about the forgiveness of sin. The, the it, it, it may be or it may not be according to the dispensation on which you live, but the reality all the time behind it all is not being immersed or sprinkled with water, but being united with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Well, that refers to the ark in the uh, date of Noah. Now there's another one, which is a very important one, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud, and in the sea. Now you could, if you didn't know the Old Testament Scriptures, prove that this baptism was by water. But there's plenty of it they were down at the Red Sea. But you know as well as I do that every single reference to the crossing of the Red Sea in the Scriptures draws your attention to the fact that they went over dry shot. Should we get just one or two to make sure? Exodus 14.22 Don't forget we are reading in the scriptures about a baptism. Exodus fourteen twenty-two, And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea, upon the dry ground. And the waters were a war unto them, on the right hand and on the left. And chapter 15, verse 19 For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And two other references. Psalm 66. Psalm 66, verse 6. Here is the psalmist going over the story, and he will repeat this same thing. He turned the sea into dry land, they went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He turned into a dry land and they went on foot. And in Isaiah 63, verse 13, this is the last reference on this matter. Isaiah 63, verse 13. Speaking of Moses, verse 12 dividing the water before them to make him an everlasting name that led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness. Well now then, we come back to 1 Corinthians 10. Israel were baptised into Moses, and the divine provision is that not a spot of water touched them. That's the first baptism, and that's so often to God. Nearly all the teaching concerning baptism goes to the tabernacle in the wilderness with its neighbor and its washings and so on, but this took place before that. Now the washings in the tabernacle didn't unite the believer with the priests or the Levites or whatnot, but this one, this one, baptized the whole nation into their leader, Moses. The same as this one baptizes every believer into Christ. And just as we are told that this was a baptism that was ordained by God, and he himself saw to it that they should be dry. So you see, if we're going to complete the analogy, we say, well, it's just a complete baptism as well. So long as I'm associated with him for the reckoning of God, the symbol may or may not be repeated. Now we come to Romans, the sixth chapter. Romans, the sixth chapter. And there, we are at the still in the Acts of the Apostles' Ministry of Paul, where he wrote to the Corinthians and said, oh yes, I did baptise some, so that I think we must be prepared to discover that he may be referring, in Romans 6, to actual literal water baptism. But At the same time, the reality remains the same, whether the baptism is changed or not. He says in Romans 6, Verse 3, know ye not that so many of us who were baptised into Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. And so we have to leave that one because it may be that in some cases they were actually baptised in water. But the teaching of the Apostle is deeper than any baptism in water could ever accomplish. It baptised them into Christ, like that baptised them into Moses, And they were buried with him by baptism into death. Associated with Christ in that way. Well then, it not only unites us with Christ, but it unites one believer with another. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if he be Christ's, then are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Well, that's a baptism indeed, isn't it? Which blots out the distinction between Jew and Greek, and male and free, male female, and bond and free. It's the reality that's here that makes those Gentiles on an equality with those other believers all one in Christ Jesus, as it says in verse twenty eight and then it unites the believer with regard to the possession of supernatural gifts in the day when supernatural gifts were a blessing blessed possession of the church, one corinthians twelve thirteen, after going through a whole list of miracles, working miracles, prophecies discerning spirits, speaking with tongues and what not. He says in verse 11, But all these worketh that one self same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Verse 13, For by one spirit are we all baptised into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. So we have this reference in connection with the baptism of the spirit, which conferred supernatural gifts during the Acts period. So much so that you remember... One unbeliever wanted to pay money to the apostles to have the the gift of passing it on to others. And he told him that his money perish with him. Well now there's one other reference that I haven't cited and that is in Luke 12.50. Luke 12.50. Owing to the fact that we are using a shorter tape. I have to become what I've never been in my life up till now, a clock watcher. But I'm doing it, of course, not for the same reason that clock watchers generally do. Luke twelve fifty. This is what the Lord himself says. But I have a baptism to be baptised with. Now that cannot be a baptism in water Because our Saviour, when John the Baptist was baptising, he went and was baptised in the river Jordan. So he was baptised in water. But he says, I have a baptism to be baptised with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Well, whatever could that be? This is Luke 12. He's looking forward to a baptism. So he used the word baptism of his approaching death. And that's the one with which we're associated. Not the one that took place at Jordan. We can't follow him there, although the term is used. And then you may know that in the evening news there is a series that has been running and they've got another one dealing with the New Testament. And I think, just notice this and I'll read it to you. Speaking about John the Baptist, John's use of the rite of baptism was in itself a portent. Customarily, it was only Gentiles who were baptised when they wished to enter the Jewish community. See, the Jews were baptised, but if you were a proselyte and you wanted to become a Jew, you were baptised. But to their astonishment, John began to tell them the Jews to be baptised. It signified that their idolatrous past was blotted out and that were now new born into the people of God. But now John the Baptist comes and it was Jews who were beginning being told that they must seek readmission just as if they were Gentiles. To be worthy of the kingdom of God they must not rely on their ancestry. Can you understand the difficulty of Nicodemus? Being born of water and a spirit and me? See? you could understand is a change so that was a little bit thrown in I thought you ought to know it and uh, then finally because our time is almost up when we get to the practical outworking of our calling as reviewed in Ephesians 1, 2 and 3 the apostle says now the first thing the very first thing that's laid upon you is not to go out and preach or teach well, that's what's got to be done but the first thing is keep keep as a sacred trust, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, one hope, and one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism. And the word Spirit comes over against the word baptism. The same as the word hope comes over against the word faith. So you say, and what sort of baptism is it in Ephesians 4? Oh, look at it! There's only one baptism for us. Now, we can't have two as they did in the Acts. See, John baptised in water and said he will baptise in spirit and the both took place in the Acts. And now we've only got one again. In the spiritual calling with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places always oh, he says the only baptism that obtains now is the baptism of the Spirit. Baptising you into Christ. As surely as that water with that Red Sea baptism baptised Israel at the beginning into Moses. So here we've looked at the third rung in this ladder. All this gracious reckoning, like we saw the taking of the stones out and the putting of the stones back. All this gracious reckoning to unite us with Christ all the way from Calvary to the right hand of God where he now sits far above all.